Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Well, good morning, morning. and happy fourth Sunday of Lent. It is good to be with everyone today. I'm Chip Webb, and I'm a member here at Corpus Christi Anglican Church. Before I begin, let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all your people's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. His name is Celadonius. Now, I might be mispronouncing it, but that's the name of the man born blind who we encounter in today's gospel reading. At least, that's the name that we have handed us down through Christian history for him. Celadonius, or alternately, Sidonius. Now, I would wager that almost everyone of us in this room, no matter how many times we have heard or read the scripture passage, um, he has remained unnamed to us. That is certainly true for me. And at least to my memory, the first person I ever heard of who was dealing with physical blindness remains unnamed as well. I used to take walks with my best friend in high school, Tom, during which we would talk about deep subjects. One day, when we were walking down the tree-lined street where he lived in our small northeast Ohio city, he told me that his younger cousin had been given the devastating news that he was going blind. Now, I never met his cousin or can even remember his name if Tom ever told it to me. But I remember that I did, out of concern, ask Tom how he was dealing with it. And Tom replied that it was very hard, but that he was doing pretty well with it, all things considered. Now, I don't remember with any certainty how much I followed up with Tom about his progress later. I'm sure I did, and I seem to recall asking Tom about him at a high school reunion some two to three decades later. But Tom's cousin remains nameless in my memory. By contrast, I do remember the name of a person I got to know in my 30s who was legally blind. I'll call her Sylvia. Sylvia was, and I understand still is, a competent person with a successful job. She had her own challenges that she would discuss with those of us who gave her rides home from church, but she was doing well. I remember Sylvia's name. Really, though, that's it in terms of the number of people who I remember with blindness. Now, any one of us here might have had more or even fewer personal encounters with those impacted by this issue. So our reactions based upon personal experience to Celadonius' story in our gospel reading undoubtedly vary considerably. But as our Book of Common Prayer says in one of our collects, all scriptures, quote, were written for our learning, unquote. And we all have areas in our lives in which we need Jesus' healing touch. Now, this chapter in John shows us 
that we need Jesus' healing touch in at least three different ways, all of which relate to themes about Jesus that develop throughout John's Gospel. Let's look at those three ways. First, we need Jesus' healing touch as our Creator. When Jesus passes by Celadonius, he quickly becomes involved in a controversy involving that man's creation. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Notice who asked him this. It wasn't the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or the scribes. So not the religious leaders of his day, but his disciples, the ordinary fishermen, tax collectors, and so on, who made up the twelve or a larger group of his disciples. By implication, then, this concern was a common one. If you're born with a serious impediment, the reasoning seems to have went, it must be a result of sin, either your own or one from your parents. And there certainly were passages in what we as Christians know to be the Old Testament that could point in either direction. Now, that's not an assumption that we see a lot of today. There might be more trendy, distant spiritual relatives of it, such as a belief in karma, that you get what's coming to you based upon what you have done. But it's probably more likely that people will look for a scientific or medical explanation for the impediment. In any case, Jesus immediately answers his disciples with a direct response that shatters their assumptions. Quote, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Verse 3. The disciples were looking for a negative cause. But Jesus emphasized a positive cause. Still, and it probably doesn't leave our mind, it doesn't take too much of our mind to come to this question. Is Jesus saying that God makes or allows someone to be blind in order for God to perform a great work in that person's life? Let's participate in a thought experiment and make it possible in our heads by replacing being blind with an area where we need Jesus' healing touch. When we put it in that context, it's an uncomfortable question, isn't it? It was probably already uncomfortable just reading it from the scriptures. And in response, some Christians might say yes, that God makes or allows such impediments, while others might say no. But I think it's important to remember that we could say that the only reason why any one of us and any human being is created is to show the works of God in our lives. After all, those of us who are Christians believe, and we at Corpus Christi Anglican like to say, that we are common people undergoing an uncommon transformation. And while our tagline doesn't say this explicitly, that uncommon transformation is a result of the work of God in our lives. It is not us seeking self-improvement for ourselves, although that can be a good thing, but a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in making us more like Jesus, in making us to be what the Apostle Paul calls new creations, and what C.S. Lewis called 
little Christ. Isn't it exciting to think of, quote, the works of God being displayed in us, unquote, as one way of summing up why God made us? Beyond Jesus' answer to that question, his healing of Celadonius evokes God's creation of humanity at the beginning. In chapter 1, verse 3 of his gospel, John tells us that all things were made through Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus mixes mud with saliva to make clay and heal Celadonius. And many of the early church fathers, such as St. John Chrysostom and St. Irenaeus, saw this action as reflecting God's creation of humanity from the dust of the earth, which we read about in Genesis chapter 2. In other words, Celadonius' creator has come to make of him a new creation in giving him sight. Celadonius does not at this point see his creator, for Jesus does not go with him to the pool of Siloam. Nor does he ever confess Jesus as creator in the passage that we read. Nevertheless, he is touched and transformed by his creator, and he ultimately worships Jesus. All of this invites us to ask ourselves, when we have experienced, when have we experienced a significant personal encounter with God, specifically as our creator, that left us greatly impacted and perhaps even experiencing a certain amount of healing? Let's just take a moment and ponder that. I'll say it again. When have we experienced a significant personal encounter with God specifically as our creator that left us greatly impacted and perhaps even experiencing a certain amount of healing. Now personally, I can think back to the night of May 15th, 1985, when the Holy Spirit convicted me of how if I believed that God was my creator, and I did, and I was his creation, and I believed that, then I was made to serve him. That was the night when I committed my life to Jesus being the Lord of it. While I would soon find out how challenging it is to follow Jesus as Lord, it was a marker for me in experiencing uncommon transformation via the works of God. Maybe others of us have also had significant markers experiencing or otherwise coming to know God as Creator. Even if we can't remember the dates or the general time frames of when they happen, that's okay. Let us treasure those times and not forget them. And by God's grace, we might have such times in our future. So John chapter 9 first invites us to see that we need Jesus' healing touch as creator. It also invites us to see that we need Jesus' healing touch as light of the world. In verse 5, Jesus asserts, I am the light of the world. And in verses 4 and 5, he explains that he must do the works of God while he is still in the world. One work is to heal Celadonius. John has already traced this theme of Jesus as light of the world in his gospel. First in chapter 1, and then again in chapter 8. We get a sense of what this means practically for us in our New Testament lesson today. Quote, 
walk as children of light for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness Ephesians chapter 5 verses 9 and 11 what is good and right and true it involves being imitators of God and walking in love as we heard near the beginning of our reading what are unfruitful works of darkness they include sexual immorality covetousness and idolatry now for those in this room who attend the student ministry hour where do you find God's words about these and other works of darkness anyone the ten commandments so in part we're dealing with morals and ethics here and former Archbishop of Canterbury William Temple notes in his readings in St. John's Gospel that the that quote the opportunity of glorifying God is the ultimate moral factor in every situation say that again the, the opportunity of glorifying God is the ultimate moral factor in every situation so putting John chapter 9 and Ephesians chapter 5 together Jesus says the light of the world does the works of God does what is good and right and true and stands against the unfruitful works of darkness along with Jesus being the light of the world naturally comes the idea of seeing Celadonius' sight literally goes from darkness to night once he was blind but now he could see and I found it interesting that some commentators suggest that Celadonius was the inspiration for the line in the hymn Amazing Grace I was blind but now I see the idea of seeing is prevalent in John's gospel beginning in chapter 1 when he says of Jesus and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth John chapter 1 verse 14 Celadonius moves progressively in John chapter 9 in the direction of the same sight from seeing his healer impersonally as quote the man called Jesus unquote in verse 11 to a prophet in verse 17 to a man from God in verse 23 to the son of man who is to be worshipped in verses 35 through 38 I think it's fair to surmise that John, our gospel writer, saw a not insignificant number of people move progressively and probably even slowly in their understanding of who Jesus was over time. And regarding other people, our Old Testament reading from 1 Samuel 16 reminds us that we need to aim as much as possible, given our finite and sinful human nature, to look at, the, to look at their hearts rather than their outward appearances and so to be imitators of God in that practice now one application here involves considering how Jesus has influenced and potentially healed us in his role as light of the world what impact has Jesus made upon what we do how has he influenced what we avoid doing what spiritual fruits has the Holy Spirit developed in our lives? How has Jesus healed us from, quote, the unfruitful works of darkness? What virtues do we desire God to impart to us? Where do we need our understanding of Jesus corrected 
or where do we need to come to a fuller knowledge of him? How can we look on others with discerning eyes, not based upon outward appearances? These are some of possibly many more questions worthy of reflection. So we need first, Jesus' healing touch as creator. Second, his healing touch as light of the world. And third, his healing touch as one who is our good shepherd. Notice that in John chapter 9, Jesus finds Celadonius twice. First, somewhere in Jerusalem after various temple controversies detailed in chapter 8. And second, after Celadonius has been ejected from the Pharisees by their meeting. Celadonius never finds Jesus. Instead, he is the equivalent of a lost sheep, first in need of physical healing, and then, I would suspect, in need of emotional and spiritual healing from being rejected. We read together in Psalm 23 of how the Lord is our shepherd, and because of that, we shall not want. He leads us through good times and bad, and yet he ultimately leads us to the place where we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And Jesus' encounter with Celadonius at the end of the reading almost directly precedes Jesus' discourse on being the good shepherd in John chapter 10. As John sees it, Jesus has just proven himself to be a good shepherd with Celadonius. Next, Jesus will talk about how he is the good shepherd. So, how has Jesus been a good shepherd in our lives? How has he been with us when we have walked through the valley of the shadow of death? How have his rod and his staff, symbols of leadership, comforted us? How has he set a table for us in the midst of challenges that are enemies to us? How have we known his goodness and loving kindness? How do, we need, how do we need Jesus to be a good shepherd in our lives? Now, Celadonius, at the time of his healing and shortly afterwards, experienced Jesus as creator, light of the world, and good shepherd. What difference did it make in his life? Last week, Father Morgan led us in looking at the Samaritan woman at the well, who, after encountering Jesus, proclaimed to her fellow townspeople, He told me all that I ever did, as we read in John chapter 4, verse 29. Celadonius, in comparison, forthrightly told of his healing to neighbors, strangers, and religious leaders, as we see throughout John chapter 9. Both the Samaritan woman and Celadonius acted as witnesses to Jesus and developed in their discipleship. And while there is not that much about Celadonius in church tradition, according to one source, he was one of the 72 disciples whom Jesus sent out on mission. And according to other sources, he eventually became a bishop in France. He also has his own holy day among Eastern Orthodox and Eastern Rite Catholics. That's Celadonius. What about us? To quote William Temple again, quote, The man blind from birth is every man. While we might not have vision-related problems, we all have our own weaknesses, our own impediments, physical, emotional, 
and or spiritual. We also all have our own besetting sins. Whatever the sources of our weaknesses, at least some of us can undoubtedly relate to these words from Christian songwriter Andy Squires. Quote, For some, living in perpetual weakness is a vocational calling. Unquote. I'll say that again. For some, living in perpetual weakness is a vocational calling. And for those of us who are in that spot, life can be very hard. Maybe we have chronic illnesses. Maybe we've experienced a life-threatening or life-debilitating disease, or several of them. Perhaps we deal with emotional wounds that other people have inflicted upon us that sting from recent occurrences or that still sting years later. Maybe we have strongly rooted patterns of sinful behavior that have never gone away despite years of prayer and other forms of spiritual discipline. There are many other such possibilities. And if we have been so blessed as to not experience such situations, we very well might sometime down the road. So what can we do in, those, in these situations? One thing that we can do is that we can look to the example of the saints. Just two days ago, we celebrated, we celebrated the, Saint, the, Saint, the, feast, the Holy Day of St. Patrick, who was um, sent into slavery for six years and had to undergo that. Today, we're celebrating the feast day of St. Joseph, who, um, who had to go into exile in Egypt with Mary and Jesus. The saints can give us patterns, can give us examples, can give us courage for what we have to go through. There's also, the, there's also the benefits that we receive from the church, from the community of faith here or at another congregation, um, and also from the rites and practices that the church makes available to us, um, services such as confession and such. But beyond all of this, there is another overwhelming factor that is stronger than our weaknesses and sins, and that is the love of God the, the, excuse me, the love that God has for each one of us. Back when I was in college, a Christian leader visiting from England spoke at my church. He said, I don't think we allow ourselves to reflect upon the love that God has for us enough. He then gave us probably five to ten minutes of partially guided reflection to do that. It was an emotional time for the congregation very emotional time. Now, we're not going to do the same thing today, but let us take one more moment of personal reflection. Let's think back to a time, perhaps even the first time, if possible, when we experienced the love of God in a substantial way, when we experientially knew that God loved us, loved us personally, and not just as a theological or propositional truth. Let's take a minute to reflect on how on, on that experience and perhaps as well on how God has been faithful to us from that time onward. Just pause here for silence for a minute.
Well, one thing we can be grateful for is that we are not nameless to God. We might forget the names of other people, but we, or, we, or we might never know them, but we are not nameless to God. Our names might not be written in the gospel, but we are not nameless to God. Jesus is our creator, our light of the world, and our good shepherd, ultimately, out of his love for us. That love is, to paraphrase the Apostle Paul, deeper, wider, and higher than any of us can imagine. And it is that love that will transform us, enable the works of God that result in healing to be displayed in us. Amen. Amen.